0: Hey everybody, Clint Fosley here and welcome to the 36th edition of the Clint Fosley podcast series and today we are speaking to T- Tiffany from the company From Divorce to Destiny. This is one hell of a fascinating conversation that I absolutely loved having with Tiffany. It really is a crazy story how she was born in Bangkok, grew up in, in Seattle in the US but also had links to France um, and then, and, you know, sort of how she weaved herself through, through that sort of, I guess the phase of, you know, moving from Bangkok to the U S and, and, feeling sort of a bit disconnected with society there, then going on to a journey, how she, you know, she wanted to become an entrepreneur and which led her to setting up a business in Paquette. And then the whole sort of, you know, the pivot of the podcast was, you know, moving back to France or moving to France and then ending up getting divorced with a husband. And I don't want to do a spoiler alert, but she was dealing with divorce in America Uh, custody battles in france and business uh, litigation in both thailand and hong kong all at the same time right so it's a really really crazy tiffany's story was really inspiring man and and you know knowing what she what she went through and you know and and where she was in a position to what she's achieving today and today she's working with the top one percent of private equity and private wealth in the world trying to help you know the, the earth and the planet and all these amazing initiatives and when you hear the podcast and listen to where she's come from as to where she is today, it is truly fascinating. So I know you'll thoroughly enjoy it. As always, if you're looking for help, reach out to me, you know, all the digital courses there, the coachings there, clintforsley.com forward slash help me. Also the Wildfoot Poaching programs and very much my initiative at the moment is I'm going to heal you through food first. And then if we need to work together, we can deal with that afterwards. I just want to, oh, sorry for that, clintforsley.com forward slash Wildfoot. I just want to thank Tiffany so much for her time, for sharing so openly. It was one of those conversations that, you know, hour 45 went by in a blink of an eye. I I think, um, and once again to Tiffany, um, from me to you, just be super proud of everything you achieved. It's an amazing story, and I know you're going to do great things in your life. So to everyone out there, enjoy it as much as I did. Strap in, enjoy, and we'll see you on the other side. Clint Fosley here and welcome back to the 36th edition of the Clint Fossley podcast. Uh, today's title is From Divorce to, Desti- to Destiny with Tiffany harson cram I hope we've got that right. Tiffany, welcome to the podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for Didn't that do not butcher moment.
0: it too badly, huh?
1: No, no, I I'm, I butcher it myself. Have no worries. Yeah, Tiffany harson cram
0: here we mm-hmm. go. Thank you very much. <laughs> How's your day been so far? It's an early start for you. You in France, right?
1: I'm in Southwest France. It's not too early for me, but yeah, I was I was up late last night on some really exciting calls, so my spirit is very high, even if my body energy is a little bit weak.
0: Brilliant. And and I mean, crazy times we live in. What's things like in in France at the moment? Are you guys? in lockdown or what's happening. I consciously don't watch the news, so I have no idea what's happening in the world.
1: Yeah. I actually don't blame you. It's very strange to have the play by play on something that's that so little real information is given on and it's weird. I mean, in France, we are in lockdown, meaning that we have to be in by 6. PM, including all the restaurant workers. And however, the kids are in school. So, yeah. People, people are a bit confused <laughs> and the, gro- yeah. of course, the grocery stores are open, but the clothing stores, some of them are open. Some of them are, are not if they're considered essential, they're open. So there's a lot of mixed messaging going on and not a lot of real data. And I think uh, it's been a perfect illustration to show us how competent government really is and, and where they're not competent at all. Yeah. So um it can be very empowering for us and very frightening for us as well, because then we, we just don't wait for them to save us. You know, we, we need to figure out solutions for ourselves. Amen. Amen. And, and
0: from a case perspective, is it on the, on the dance? I mean, has vaccination started or what is happening?
1: <laughs> oh, you're going to be sorry. You asked about this one. Because <laughs> no, it's it's like, got down the rabbit hole. Like, yeah. France, Okay, at this rate, I'll put it this way. I think we're doing 200,000 vaccinations per day, which means it'll take us the next 500 days to vaccinate the population. Okay. Which also means that the United States, as much as we were laughing at them uh, two or three months ago, are now going to absolutely flame us. (laughs) So, and and I'm French, Thai, American, so I hold... You know, I I hold all three perspectives at once and I can kind of, you know, tease the Americans because I am an American and I can tease the French too because man, both both of those countries have, you know, quite bungled their responses, unfortunately.
0: So in Australia, from my knowledge, we haven't even started yet. I think it only starts next Mm -hmm. week, the vaccination. But there, I mean, only 27 million. Um, But from my knowledge, when I was listening to a radio, when I drive my kids to school, it's like the only news I get um, but it only starts up next week.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, you have it pretty well contained though. It sounds like, <laughs>
0: well, we, we get one person infected and they shut down a city. So, you know, we, we, our life here is, you know, absolutely per normal in a bar with live music stadiums, 50,000 people. It's, it's, it's so weird, um, huh. living here because it's just I mean, the only thing you have to do is scan in and out with an app, if you go get, you know, go out for dinner, but other than that, it's pretty normal. So it's pretty surreal. Wow.
1: wow. That, that's amazing. It, for us, it's like pandemic has lasted so long. It's hard to remember what life was really like, what normal life is like, yeah. you know, the kids are living in this very weird dystopia.
0: I'm actually coaching a couple at the moment out of Canada. And they, they have got three kids. They're coming out of their winter. They snowed in and they're sort of at level one and they haven't, they can't go out. And for like yeah. literally 13 months, they've been in this cocoon with three children, you know, just yeah. snowed in and they just, I think, I think the wife last week went to the grocery store for the first time in like three months. And it was like an event. She was like, this is amazing. I went to a grocery store. So just for their mental health, it's crazy what they're going through.
1: Yeah. It, it's very much the same here. And with many of my friends in the States, the single friends have been tremendously isolated. And at that point, I just, you know, I mean, you have to take some risks if you're going to to keep your mental health sometimes, because if you feel yeah. yourself getting a little bit too, as they call it in France, sauvage, which means, you know, when you're out in the wilderness by yourself and you forget how to be with people and you, <laughs> you kind of go a little yeah. bit uh, nuts in your, your little bubble. Um, yeah. I mean, to keep our humanity.
0: And I think for all of us, it's, it's, you know, as much as I've got three kids, right. And they're all device driven, which drives me nuts. You know, they're always on their phones. Mm-hmm. It's what, what this last year has truly shown us is how we all do crave that human connection. And we are, yeah, yeah I'm a very spiritual being and a collective force mm-hmm. and all that stuff, but we, we, we all crave that and, and long for that. And, you know, f- through, through, All the, I guess, I mean, I saw, I've seen this whole thing as a bit of a blessing, personally, for personal growth and, you know, validation of path and all that stuff. But it's just, it's enforced to me that we as humans want to be connected and we miss each other and we long for each other because we are tribal beings.
1: It's going to be really interesting to see what we come out of this with because we have a high appreciation now for touch, and Mm -hmm. I think touch has become something sacred to us now. And at the same time, we're going to have to reprogram our own fear and paranoia around being close to other people and touching other people, because I've seen myself even in the grocery store, you know, kind of avoiding, avoiding people or trying not to touch people or trying not to touch things that other people have touched. And that's, that's now become part of our consciousness as well, all the while craving touch. So, yeah, I, I'm very, very curious to see what we come out of this with. It's, it's,
0: it is one massive experiment. I mean, because, you know, if you, if you look at, I mean, for me, it was an amazing opportunity to get off, you know, flying around the world, doing that, that game. Right. And, Mm. and just, just pause. That was a good thing, but, and good for mother nature and the earth and all the other things that were good for terrible for the airline industry, but that's, that's the Mm -hmm. other side, but it's going to be, as you say, like, let's, let's, you know, pull the pull everything forward 18 months, two years when everyone's back. Oh, 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 as a human race, we're just going to get back on that treadmill and keep going and push harder and push mother nature harder and push ourselves harder. Or are we going to be retrospective? I, I don't know. It's going to be fascinating.
1: I, I don't believe we will. Actually, I have a lot of hope for that. I've spoken to so many people. In fact, you know, I'm very social, but I'm social online. I'm in zoom meetings all day with mm. business meetings and, and, and coachings and things. And, Um, nearly everyone that I've spoken to has gotten more in touch with nature and has valued that far more. And I think that, you know, the same story as you've said with being on a plane every, every week or flitting around the world, they're relieved, relieved to have had a break and have had a pause and had time with themselves and their family. And so they're not planning on going back to that very few I think I've only counted one or two people out of hundreds who have said, oh, I can't wait to get back on a plane.
0: (sighs) I I mean, my diamond shoes are too tight, but I'm desperate to go snowboarding again. (laughs) I want to go to Fiji to go surf and go snowboarding, but those are serious first world problems to have.
1: Yeah. Sounds like a nice life though.
0: It's good. It's good. Anyway, let's get back to the podcast. Let's not talk about COVID and the world and get (laughs) while we're here today. So as we always do, um, I always love to do is just to get to know about everyone, like where you grew up, from what I picked up with your, not your, your triple nationality, it's, you know, it's going to be an interesting story, yeah. where you grew up, you know, what you're interested in, like with a kid, just early life, and just to let everyone to get to know you a little bit.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I think, you know, it is pretty unique to have a background where you're growing up in three different cultures. And mine are French, Thai, and American. Um, my father okay. being being a Thai uh, Thai Airways pilot. So we, okay. we were flying around. Um, I grew up with the kind of vision as, as the globe, as a home, you know, as kind of a small place where um, we grew up with all kinds of uh, expatriates in our community. So That mix of culture to me was just very logical and enriching and also being able to kind of put on my different hats of, you know, how did the French see the world? How do Americans see the world? How did the Thai, which are very different. I have to say, it's not, you know, like we're talking about completely different worldviews and seeing how we're so similar and seeing where we're dissimilar um, to me has been fascinating. And you know, since then I've gotten my Antarctica passport, which is kind of a an art um, a, an art project that a university in London did, just to say you know, in Antarctica anyone can be a citizen, everyone can have a passport, just saying that you know we all belong to this planet. Yeah. Uh, and just last week I got my Estonian e residency card. So. Um, it, it's been interesting growing up there and with people from a different religious backgrounds as well. My parents were evangelical Christians and became so when I was about two or three years old, um, converted with some missionaries that were in Bangkok. Yep. So um, also, you know, seeing the lens through culture and seeing the lens through religious culture as well. And, and different pockets. Of course, Seattle has its own culture where I grew up in the States. Um, Seattle uh, is, is the kind of the techie scene and everyone's like really sarcastic and snide but also quite open and kind. And so, um, yeah, I, I grew up kind of in that, that bath of being able to put on different hats, put on different outfits and try to see the same thing from two or three different perspectives knowing that, you know, there wasn't one false one. It was just a different way of looking at it.
0: So just from picking up what you said, obviously, you grew, born in Bangkok, how, when did, did you move to Seattle? Was that part of your, did your dad stay with Thai Airlines and move to the U.S.? Or how did, how did that whole shift happen?
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. So I was born in Bangkok and the pollution was so bad in Bangkok that my mother, who was from Paris, wanted to move to Paris for a year. And then my father decided to move the whole family to Seattle because that is where he saw the most trees, literally. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah. He just said, oh, this place looks green. Let's move the family there. And since he had been flying there with his airline, we set up a base, uh, literally an airline base in Seattle. And so I grew up, I, I was there until I was about 24 um, with having spent a year at, j- at jazz school of all things in, in France um, and then decided to become an entrepreneur. So I, I okay. was in Seattle. I had a SOMA neuromuscular integration practice, which is like an um, an alternative uh, healing therapy, let's say a, a physical modality where you're aligning the body's fascial tissues. And that yep. was really fun and really cool. But I felt like, mm, I'm just helping one person at a time. It's a bit slow for me. I want to have more impact. I want to, you know, do something that feels more meaningful to me, even though it was it, it was a wonderful, meaningful thing to do for that one person on the table, but it was only one person on the table. And then I became an entrepreneur, moved to Phuket, Thailand, and lived there for seven years. So I really understand your, your surfing proclivities because the beach life was just, ah, oh, just amazing. <laughs> And then and then after that I moved when I had children I moved to France for the educational system
0: okay so so we, we, we ran forward a couple of decades there so just um, what I'm what I'm super intrigued with coming from what yeah. age were you when you moved to the US because that must have been a huge call I mean obviously from my uh, my assumption with your dad being an international traveler you saw the world right from a very young age yeah. but that culture shock of coming out of Bangkok going into an American How was that for you? Did you adjust easily? And and what was that like Mm. doing that shift?
1: You know, no one's ever asked me that question before. That's fantastic. Um, It was, it was a double shift for me because I was coming from a different culture where kids would kind of run around barefoot. And we had a big freedom in Thailand that felt kind of close to nature, Uh, where, you know, there were just fruit trees growing outside and you just go pick them. And people were kind of, you know, laughing and simple and easy and nothing was stressful. Whereas Mm -hmm. you go to the United States and mind you, it was the 80s. (laughs) So everything was like Madonna plastic girl. Like everything was so made up and people were really into television and shows. And so it was almost like, you know, where, where people say that, Television mimics life. It was almost like in the United States, life mimicked television. Like everyone wanted to be a sitcom. And so you had, they understood that things were done in a formulaic way with the end of every half hour, something had to be resolved or happy, or people had to look a certain way or people had to act a certain way. And you were always telling these jokes, but these jokes were very, um, yeah, they're very positive sitcom. kind of, you know, it, it was, it wasn't natural. It was, it was forward moving. It was energetic. It was positive. It was huge goals, aspirations, dreams. The, the, the American way is just, you know, go big or go home and you can do anything you want to do. So that was hugely energizing, but at the same time, having to feeling like I had to lose the, the, just the natural ease of life. Yeah. Like
0: and, and, and do you think the, the temperature, yeah. because it's, I mean, from my know I've, I've only been to Seattle once, but it gets super cold, right? So coming from that sort of tropical climate into right. not only the concrete jungle, but the cold, because I, I lasted, I think, three years in London, and then I was out because it was just too cold for me. But do you think that also had an yeah. effect as well?
1: It is, it is somewhat similar, um, although I don't, I don't remember being affected by the cold. But I can say that people in Seattle generally are affected by the weather and they tend Mm -hmm. to be more depressed. So I think as a culture, you feel people are a little bit less positive than let's say in California. Um, And that's just, you know, that's natural. What happens when you're lacking in vitamin D and outdoor activity and um, yeah. So, but I didn't, as a child, I didn't feel it. I would. Yeah. I didn't feel it. It just, um, it, Moving to Seattle was just a, a little, a little jarring in the way um, people were so, so made up, so perfect, so Barbie perfect. Um, and I think, you know, I think that America has kind of a reputation for that as well. You see yeah. everybody in the shows. So it took me a few years to adjust to that, especially looking the way that I did. I've got, I'm Asian. I've got freckles um, which was also already highly unusual. And then I had glasses and then I had braces and, you know, everything was wrong basically for quite a while.
0: Yeah. So basically you saw Seattle, like I see Instagram today, probably. It's probably a fair assumption where it's just this fake fakeness of everything, which, which freaks me out quite a bit.
1: And it, and it, I have to say it was at the height in the eighties. I mean, wow, everyone was in neon.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and spandex, baby. Spandex was big.
1: Spandex. Yeah. But I but remember my first pair.
0: Yeah. <laughs> doesn't Se- Se- Seattle's legalized marijuana now for all accounts? So hopefully everyone's chilled out a bit there.
1: They uh, have turned really green. Uh, oh, okay,
0: since, that's awesome.
1: Uh, so it's fantastic. You, you know, you go to any restaurant and they're going to tell you where they source their meat and where they source wow. their vegetables trying to do things locally, trying to do things organically. There's a high consciousness there. But I have to say it also comes with uh, an interesting wealth factor. Um, the whole West Coast, tremendously wealthy with tech and very, very intelligent, but at the same time can be a little bit removed from you know, what happens in the third world, can be a bit removed from uh, human compassion and empathy because it is so heady, so very heady. Mm -hmm. Um, and not so much in the heart. So that's why I love the mixing of cultures is because we all bring something to one another. You know, you take some of these wonderfully heady, intelligent, techie people, and you combine them with a heart-filled project and there you've got a winner.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. So sort of leveraging towards after you left school to the body work, what, what is your interest in that from the, obviously, you know, you wanted to be a healer and How did you end up in that field? Did that always interest you? And and how did that whole sort of, you know, the the muscle alignment
1: work happen? Yeah, I've always had a tendency towards wanting to help and heal. And Mm -hmm. I think part of that was a need for me to educate myself on my own body and feeling comfortable in my own body. Um, I was very academic myself, really into reading books and stuffing my brain with as much information as possible and feeling quite a disconnect between my head and the rest of my body. In fact, probably feeling quite disembodied, um, not wanting to be in my body, in other words. So this was a real education for me in getting in my body, feeling comfortable in my body, loving my body, and understanding how other people felt in their bodies. And The education I received there was absolutely invaluable in nearly everything else I've done in my life because I can look at somebody now with the eyes of my uh, soma therapist eyes and Mm. figure out what they're feeling, know where they're feeling unconfident, where they're feeling discomfort, even emotionally. I can scan somebody's posture, scan somebody's body um, and And intuitively feel into their energy and what's going on. So that's really interesting to me when you literally put some your yourself in someone else's shoes and you feel in your body what it's like to be them. Um, It gives you another depth of being able to understand and and reach somebody where where they are. Maybe see things that they can't verbalize.
0: Yeah, I'm busy going down the whole energy healing rabbit hole at the moment. Busy listening. Yeah. Here's a book Absolutely. called the energy code. I've actually got a tomorrow morning early, I'm driving down two hours for actually an energy healing. Um myself, I've got gunky arthritic knees and and have uh, tried every. Yeah. when I say everything like everything like past life healers, the sauna, mm. ice bars, clean nutrition, everything. And my knees mm-hmm. just won't come right. Um so I'm 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 going, I'm actually going on the energy blocking now and actually going going for a healing tomorrow. So hopefully yeah. <laughs> hopefully when this goes live my knees will be clear. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I know when I have uh, problems with confidence, sometimes I have problems in my knees and it's supposed to be a place of stability and being able to kind of stand stand in your confidence and stand in your truth, let's say. It doesn't always mean that though. I think you know, sometimes we have energetic problems and sometimes we have physical problems and knowing which problem you have (laughs) is, is important, but sometimes you don't know. And you just try it all, you know, you try it all fine. But, um, but for me, you know, I know, and and what I've noticed in people is that the knees come when sometimes you've taken a hit in your confidence, or you've taken a hit emotionally, and you're not feeling like you're standing on firm ground within Mm -hmm. yourself. And then the knees start, um, start feeling the pain. Because of course, if your knees are bad, you, you don't know when you're going to fall or you don't know when you're, when you can trust them to take a jump or, you know, yeah. take a twist or whatever. So those, those are the kind of the, um, the emotional parallels, let's say. I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm,
0: I, well, I'm, just, I'm a bit of a human Guinea pig. So I'm so, I'm like so excited for it. It's going to be good. See what happens. Oh, yeah. So, so, once you did that work, what, why choose Paquette? I mean, are you assuming you had the globe to look at, um, you know, coming from Seattle, why not Bangkok, why Paquette? you know, what, what, if you can think back then to, I think you said you were 24, um, what was the decision tree like, or or wasn't there one?
1: Well, it was to do with my ex-husband, actually. Um, he wasn't, a, he's French okay. and he wasn't adjusting to life in Seattle. I think, um, you know, the standards in Seattle are very high. People are very fast moving. And, um, and as I said, just really brilliant and and motivated. And he was trying to find his footing, also trying to learn English, but just professionally um, struggling. And And of course, the price of real estate was just skyrocketing at that time because of tech. And so we decided, you know, let's, let's go somewhere and be entrepreneurs and see if, you know, you can do something that's going to to fulfill you in life because he was really looking for his path, and I was flexible, so we decided on tropical island because why not? You know, like I that can. You. And and it was a great decision. I mean, living in Phuket was um, a beautiful way to spend the first few years of marriage, um, and Thailand has Asia, just in general, has a wonderful energy of staying relaxed while doing a lot. So we got a lot done, Um, and because you can, because there are so many people to help you do everything, you know, whereas in the West, you can spend forever on administration and uh, getting this, you know, getting this task done and that task done. In Thailand, you have people helping you with everything. So we were moving forward in building enterprises kind of at the speed of light while spending a lot of time at the beach.
0: That's awesome. And, and what from, a, from an entrepreneurial background, where, where were you branching into those days? Was it still on the, on the sort of the, you know, helping people or what were, what were you looking at from it? Was it a technology play or, or what were you busy with in those
1: days? A uh, little bit, very light tech. It was outsourcing, mm-hmm. web design and AutoCAD. And then I started a tourism uh, related business, which was basically, you know, bo- boat tickets and tours around Phuket but yeah. putting it online because at that time people were selling them physically in the street. Yeah. yeah.
0: I've, I've spent a month in Thailand. So it's, yeah. It's, remember getting off the ferries. It was frantic. Everyone, you know, shoving yeah. laminate, laminated sort of screenshots or photos of the accommodation was nothing, nothing was digital in those days.
1: Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So we were kind of right in that wave of digitizing things.
0: Awesome. And then you said you had your kids in Thailand in Phuket.
1: Both of my daughters were born in Phuket. Yeah.
0: Okay, brilliant. And then when did you did you move back to France, as you said, for an education? So how old were they then and and and, and how did that all look? Yeah. How was it adjusting from island life <laughs> to going back to back to first world?
1: Oh wow. That was that was a real doozy. You know, if it had been for me, I would have stayed in Phuket. But when you're in Thailand, you essentially have two choices of education, which is you know, the general education and it's a lot of rote learning. Uh, from my, let's say, from my American perspective, it's almost military-like, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want my kids to do that, not to mention that the level of education was very low. Or you're paying for a private school, in which case it's $3,000 a month. Uh, and then you have a different problem in which the kids are competing with their Louis Vuitton uh, bags and their sports cars. And yep. um, that's not a problem I wanted to deal with either. And I think the, the kind of most poignant reason to leave was that um, in this class system, there's also a racial class system in which, um, you know, the lighter your skin, the wealthier, more prestigious you are. And I remember my daughter, who was five years old at the time, my eldest daughter, and then my, my youngest was two years old, she said, well, at school, everybody wants to be like me because I'm white and I'm pretty. And wow. knowing that at that age, she had been so reinforced with those messages already and obviously not coming from my home. And I, I'm, I'm not white, um, but she, she had fair skin and she had blonde hair and she had green eyes. And so knowing that she had already differentiated herself so much from people because of their comments, because they would say, oh, you're so pretty, your skin is so white. Oh, you're so pretty, your hair is so light. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I, I knew that that was a really unhealthy way to grow up, not to mention the way that, that women are treated um, many times and objectified in, in that society. And I know because I grew up in that society, I grew up yeah. very much feeling, feeling like that. So that wasn't a programming that I was keen on for the kids, which is why I said, let's, let's move back to France for their education um, and in, in that regard, things are much healthier in France. There is racism here. There is class system hierarchy here, yeah. but it's not as extreme.
0: So this is the, my inquisitive brain, but fr- from a Thai perspective, was that the fair skin was, was, is that just a, like an ingrained Thai cultural thing, or was it the perception of wealth from expats coming in, having fairer skin, therefore fairer skin equated to wealth or, or where did that, act, where did that yeah. come from? 'cause it's, it's it's intriguing to
1: me. I, I think there is kind of a common narrative to say it comes from colonialism or it comes from mm. exported ideas of wealth. I don't actually I, I don't actually put the blame there for the majority for the most part. I think it's historical because everywhere in Asia you have a class system a hierarchy where the higher you up or the higher up you are, the wealthier you are, the wider your skin because of, you know, people used to be in the fields and then people used to be indoors and you, you knew who was who. Um, and I think that's carried on, but yeah. perhaps, perhaps the portions that, you know, have come from media in the West and, you know, Californication is real. Like, <laughs> We we've all been affected by the media, yeah. the movies, and the shows that we've watched, and so from there, maybe the ideas about our noses or our eyes, the shapes of things, have changed a bit. Okay,
0: um, so we landed with a five-year-old and a two-year-old. Were you in Paris, or where did you end up in France?
1: I ended up in the southwest of France, where my ex-husband's okay. family is from, and I'm okay. still here. Yeah,
0: there you go, <laughs> and, and you haven't moved since.
1: No, I haven't. Uh, and it's not because I didn't want to, honestly, I was very frustrated and upset with being quote unquote stuck here. And I really was stuck here. Um, and now I'm grateful for it. Nine years on, I'm very grateful because I couldn't have foreseen what was going to happen on planet earth back then.
0: So, um, do you want to talk about what happened? Obviously, you know, the divorce and your, your, the start of your new mission, but um, do you want to share what happened there and, and that journey as much as you do or don't want to share, um, you know, it would be just magic so everyone can get an understanding what you went through.
1: Yeah. So, so I was married actually 10 years. Um, and uh, as, as you know, I married a French guy who I met in Seattle and, and we met when we were very young, 15 and 16 years old. Um, as he came and stayed with my family as a foreign exchange student for a month, and then we kind of we kind of stayed in go. touch a little bit, <laughs> yeah. So that happened, and <laughs> and then we stayed in touch a bit. And when I went back to France when I was 19 um, as a music student at a jazz mm-hmm. school, we got in touch again, and we started dating again. And it was kind of like a a moth to a flame kind of relationship where I just felt like absolutely sucked in and I I couldn't get away. Um, not that I was trying too hard, but it was it was a situation where I knew he wasn't a great fit that let's say he was a little bit of a fixer upper. Um, but at the same time, I was so, there was something absolutely magnetic about him that I do, I, I don't know what you believe about your spiritual path or if you have one, but for me, it was, um kind of almost on the soul contract level or on a way where you know he he had been drawing into things that I needed healed. So uh so maybe a better way to describe it would be a tidal wave. I was taking into I was taken into the tidal wave. (laughs) And and we were married quite young. I mean I was 24, he was 23 and we married in Seattle. Uh because I was so religious and so conservative that I said look either you know, we, we do this and get married or we don't. And then he opted for marriage, which was very rare for somebody French his age, actually, I have to say. So we were (laughs) married. And as I said, we moved to Thailand um, and he was doing really well. Uh, He came from a very disturbed family background, a lot of trauma there. Uh, His father was full-blown narcissist. Um, his mother suffered a lot from that, and I think it delved into a state of paranoia. So he didn't have any stable, loving, generous parental figures in his life. Uh, and that's not to mention, you know, the rest of family dynamics. But needless yeah. to say, there was a lot of trauma there. Uh, and he was doing really well as, as being adopted by my family which I'm very lucky. I I had tremendously supportive, loving parents. He was doing very well, um, growing a lot as a person, uh, growing spiritually, growing emotionally. Um, but you know, still, still having quite a few struggles. And so, um, after a while, you know, I felt like I was actually living my life in service, which is what happens in these dynamics. You know, I was, I was playing rescuer. I was playing nursemaid. I was playing mother. Um, And that can't, that can't last. Uh, It's not, it's not a sustainable relationship. Let's put it that way. Um, But, but in that my self-esteem had gotten so low because he, he knew that in order to keep me, I would have to be criticized and debased on a regular basis. So I had, felt like I'd completely lost myself. I was only a shell of who I used to be. I used to be bubbly and outgoing and confident and into music and into dance and expressive and artistic and, and, and really motivated. And I looked at myself and after a few years of that relationship where I had been giving a lot as a caretaker and receiving a lot of criticism and and put downs and, and a lot of control, actually jealousy and, um, and full financial control and, you know, things of that nature where he, he, he was trying to keep me. Um, I, I, you know, I just wasn't me. I just wasn't yeah. me. And I saw that. And then knowing that I had two daughters that were watching this and watching the way we were interacting, there were months that would go by where he wouldn't even, you know, address me as a person. I would be essentially addressed wow. as an employee. Um, and so, you know, there was one day where he came home and just, you know, we hadn't said hello, hadn't spoken at all. Not how are you, but just, you know, started giving me orders as soon as he walked in the door about, you need to do this for me and you need to do that. And why haven't you done this? And, and I've been taking care of the kids full time all by myself with no help. Uh, and, and knowing that my daughters were watching this, I said, this is, I I can't. I can't give them this example. What a disservice to my daughters for them to see the example of a woman like this being treated as an employee, quite frankly. And um, and was so that the
0: straw I, that broke the camel's back? That that exact incident was that the pivoting turning yeah. point for you, where, where you knew that you had to do something.
1: Let's. I, I think there were many straws that broke the camel's back as many women. you know, Women have a pattern of sitting on a bad relationship for years before actually acting on their desire to leave. And that was me, I had given multiple warnings. In fact, three years prior, I had said, if things don't change, I'm leaving. Um, and that had happened a few times, but that day that, yeah, that was, that was the end of that. That was the end of the warnings. <laughs>
0: This is the 18th time I'm telling you I'm leaving and I mean it this time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm counting to 10. And uh, yeah, I I think that my girls were old enough to see that dynamic. And I knew that they were old enough to see that dynamic. And I said, if they grow up to be like me in this very moment, I will have failed. Um, So I said that that evening, I told him, you know, this, this isn't working I, I don't have a spot in this relationship. This relationship is completely about serving you and your needs and your goals. I don't even align with your goals. I have zero desire to retire at age 35 so I can um, spend time at the beach. Like I want to make a difference with my life. I want to use my skills and talents. I want to develop my skills and talents. You know, I want our daughters to grow up, to do the same. Um, and, yeah. And, and so I just said, let's, let's divorce. And he uh, reacted immediately saying, yes, I, I totally agree with you. I, I want the same thing. Let's do. It. And of course, now I know that that was posturing at the, time, <laughs> the, the, the a kind of inegoic uh, posturing yeah, response, yeah. but I thought we were on the same page. And I said, yeah. you know, let's, let's do this in a lovely, friendly way. Let's, let's remain family just because we're not married doesn't mean we can't be family. Let's raise the girls together. Let's stay close. Let's, let's do holidays. Let's do vacations, whatever we can do as friends, but let's, you know, like you're, and at that point it was really like, he was a brother to me. That was the dynamic because obviously when you're caretaking somebody for that long, there's not a lot of physical attraction. And I have to say that at that time, you know, I felt like I was sexually broken because I had no desire that, and, it, and so the thoughts I had on myself, you know, my self-esteem being so low thinking that no one was going to want me, no one was going to want a single mother, um, especially one, you know, in my position where I had nothing to show for myself because I had, I had given so much the relationship and the family mm-hmm. that I didn't have my own, you know, quote unquote career. Um, and then feeling like I was sexually broken at the time was just like, it it was a huge risk for me to walk away because I felt like I was walking away with very little.
0: Can I ask you just another question just based on something you you said earlier about coming from a very, very sort of strict religious background. I'm assuming that played heavily on your, on your head and heart when you, well, let, let me, let me, Preface yeah. this Just, I think it's amazingly brave what you did, right? Because I deal with a lot of women who are in that same situation and do stay and stay and stay. So I just want to commend you for actually doing that thing. It's amazing, as, as a you. starting point. But um, did that did that staunch religious upbringing? I'm sure it must have weighed heavily on the decision. Well, I'm not actually meant to do this, right? It's till death do us part. Yeah. All the stuff that was was obviously a very important part of your parents' life, which was you know gets transferred to you. How much did that weigh on you during that decision process? It,
1: it weighed so heavily that I'm going to probably do an entire course just on that. <laughs> overcoming, <laughs> overcoming religious guilt and divorce. Yeah. Because the messaging that I had received from my up, religious upbringing was that divorce was not an option. That divorce was probably one of the worst things that you could do. One of the worst sins that you could commit. That my children would be messed up for life if I did, uh, and that I would be worthless if I did. I would be completely undesirable because I would have the scarlet letter A. So the relationship had gotten so bad that all of that was still worth it to me. To (laughs) to, to, yeah,
0: that's uh, fine. I look I look good. I look good in scarlet. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly, I just had to um, kind of choose choose to take the risk of all of that happening, all of the fallout, and leaving my church. I mean, at that point, I was so involved with my church, I was one of the elders, I even gave a sermon on Sunday, I was leading Bible studies, I was doing, you know, I had been a worship leader for years, I had been church secretary, I was highly, highly involved in in my churches that I attended, both in Phuket and in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And that was deeply important to me And knowing that I might be rejected by the people in my church, that I might no longer be seen as a role model or a leader in any capacity. It had to be worth it for me to to lose all of that. And, yeah. and so that was, <laughs> honestly, um, I think that my divorce came at the very same time as questioning my religious beliefs and questioning the validity of a system that would keep me in a relationship where I was not even really alive, mm-hmm. um, and and trying to understand what God, and now you know what I would call spirit or the universe, would want for my life. What was my life made for? What was my purpose? Was my purpose to help this man retire when he was thirty five so that he could go fishing? Probably not. <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> and
1: I, I, look, it's, so, it's so funny for me to think about that now, because honestly, like looking back to where I am today, uh, the conversations I had yesterday on the phone were, and, and on Zoom, were talking about ways that we can actually very legitimately reverse this climate change situation. Mm -hmm. where we could very possibly help 4 billion people get addresses and access to basic services. These are the conversations I'm not only involved in, but sometimes leading right now on a daily basis. And to think that I could have given that up for remaining in a marriage where I was serving somebody as their quote unquote helpmate. Um, And I was staying.
0: He would have been fishing at 35, right? Come on. They're sure yeah. that's worth it.
1: Well, we yeah, we, we might have <laughs> we might have gotten sick of fish. That was also another risk. But yeah, it, it was just, um, it, it's very funny to think about, and it's not funny at all. It's very sad, but it, it's so shocking for me to think about how long I stayed in that relationship because of my religious beliefs,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because I felt so bad and so wrong leaving. And and now looking back, there's no way that that was the wrong decision to leave. There is no, there's no possible way looking at where my life is now. No, no one, I don't care how religious they are. that could, could look at me and say, Oh, you would have been better off and your children would have been better off. Had you stayed in the relationship?
0: I'll finish off with an amen. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, 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 you, you, you got to the stage where we were having family holidays that obviously didn't work out. What, what actually happened? I mean, what was it, was it the, the the rough and bumpy divorce road um, once it actually got down to brass tacks?
1: Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you're right. That did not work out. Um, <laughs> not, not the plan A did not happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you know, this whole concept of conscious uncoupling. I wanted to do the Gwyneth Paltrow thing. The, mm-hmm. Even though she hadn't, she hadn't done the conscious uncoupling yet in Gloop uh, Goop magazine. I I had conceptualized it already saying, you know, this doesn't have to be war at all. And really I, I loved him. I loved him just as a brother. Mm-hmm. So, and I wanted what was best for him. Um, so we proceeded as such and we said "Well, we'll move to france and we're going to live very close to one another we're going to co-raise the children maybe we can live within a few blocks of one another whatever it is and he said he was going to look for a duplex a house where he would live in one side i would live in the other side and you know we could have our separate lives but have the children be able to go back and forth and that sounded like a fantastic plan well So I had trusted him to manage that with his cousins over here trying to find us a house and then sort out the finances where he said the income from our our family company that we built together would be split Mm -hmm. 50-50, all is well. Then um, my father passed away actually just before we moved. And while he was in the emergency room, my ex-husband went to Hong Kong to open a bank account, a new bank account for the business on which he put only his name Uh, And he said that because I hadn't been able to fly since I was with my father in the ICU, that we would add my name later, Um, later never happened. So that was number one red flag that I ignored because, uh, you know, frankly, I I didn't have the choice. I was with my father. And then we moved to France and he said he was still looking for a house, still looking for a house. Um, And two months later he announced that he didn't like living in France and he was moving back to Thailand so he left me and the girls in France, living at his mother's house, that he had actually, uh, you know, wow, pur- yeah, purchased. It, it was a second home. His his mother had multiple yeah. homes, uh, but he had left me there with the girls, and then subsequently cut off the finances, cut off my access to the finances, cut off my access to the business, everything. So it turns out that that entire time that we had been planning to amicably separate. He was actually planning to have everything um, and to leave me with subsequently nothing. And then after that, he said, you know, I still want us to remain married. I want us to remain together. And if you leave me, if you really do leave me, I will take everything. I will take everything, the children included. Uh, and I didn't think that was possible. I, I thought that the law would be on my side. I thought that, you know, there was no way he would be able to handle the children and whatnot. So I, I kind of just, you know, like blew it off. Oh, yeah, sure. You're going to take everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought he was just making threats. He was actually serious. He was actually serious. And he he subsequently, uh, when I refused to get back together with him, he subsequently, um began to wage legal war and even went after custody of the children took the whole business took all of the money all of the assets everything and and I was here uh in France you know still trying to relearn French since I hadn't spoken French since I was five um well actually no I spoke it a bit when I was 19 but you know my my, it it wasn't business level French let me just say that so yeah so that was a, a really scary time So how does that actually
0: work though? Because,
1: because,
0: I mean, I'm trying to say like from a, from a custody law perspective, because here it's, you get your financial separation, which is one aspect and then you get the Mm -hmm. children, which is another aspect. But, you know, for me, it is all based on one law system here. You're dealing with, you're an American citizen living in France with your ex in Thailand with a business in Hong Kong. So, so which jurisdiction, which jurisdiction looks after what and, and how the hell does that work?
1: Uh, it was all jurisdictions. It was all jurisdictions, which is why, because it depends on for what. So the marriage was done in the United States. So they are, they decide what form of marriage we have. The business uh, finances were in Hong Kong. The business base was in Thailand. So for each of these pieces, and then of course the child custody was in France For each of these pieces, it would have needed to be done in each of these jurisdictions. And having cut me off from the finances, I wasn't able to do that. Wow. And and this this is a warning as well for people who are preparing to divorce. This is what happens when, you know, sometimes people will cut you off from the finances because they're just being greedy. But sometimes people will cut you off from the finances so that you don't have the money to defend yourself. And this is what happens often in child custody cases: is that um, is, is that somebody will try to drag it out or try to do it in such a way where you can't earn a living or you can't continue paying the legal fees. And I've seen that that form of it starts out as financial abuse, but it ends up being legal abuse because if you don't have money, you can't defend yeah. yourself in court.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah. And 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 how did that all? Plan out. I mean, because if you if you financially cut off, um, yeah. you managing the kids twenty four seven. Yeah, um, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to think. a Lot of that sleepless too. nights. Yeah, I mean that's the yes. load. I mean, I, I single dad. I get that. Right? Don't you worry? You know, I know the load that that puts on, um, yeah. and trying to keep your shit together and not have sleepless nights, which I'm sure you had plenty of. What is the strategy at that time? I mean, besides survive, which I'm sure felt like that, how how did you kind of resolve it? Or didn't you resolve it? Or or what was the game plan?
1: So that's, um, it's an interesting question because there are several fronts, you know, there's several things going on in your mind when you're in that situation. First of all, this, you know, my thought was, wow, this is impossible. This situation that I'm living in is right now impossible. Um, this, the second thought was, what can I do to fight? What can I do to defend myself? What can I do to get back? But, and then that logical stream goes, okay, well, then I need to get free legal help then I need to get government assistance. Then I need to get, you know, my mother to, to loan me some money so that I can survive. So Mm -hmm. you go into all of this logistical survival planning, and that is the absolute fight or flight response of, yeah, I'm going to freak out. And then I'm going to make sure that I can eat and that I can live. That's kind of the level one response. And a lot of people stay at that response because they are in fight or flight and they're just trying to make it, they're trying to survive. And, my saving grace was that I was able to get out of that fight or flight and get to the big picture program of who am I? What do I want? How do I create the life that I want? uh, Making bricks from hay, making the impossible happen in this situation, literally creating a life out of nothing. Um, And that came because I had an opportunity that many people don't have, which is being stuck in the countryside of a country where I knew nobody or, or only, only <laughs> my existence <laughs> friends and being in that place. And, and my mother was with me at the time, thank God, but being in that place of isolation caused me to dive in. And mm-hmm. I was watching anybody and everybody I could find on the internet with topics around this and topics around rebuilding yourself and dealing with stress and divorce and tragedy. And I was learning, you know, I was doing EMDR techniques and I was doing tapping techniques and I was doing um, affirmations and I was doing, you know, just about anything that I could find to do. But what I really did was I surrounded myself virtually with people who were inspirational, amazing, successful, um, deep People who I was listening to talks, you know, from Byron Katie and Eckhart Tolle and uh, Teal Swan and Tony Robbins and, uh, you know, all of these kinds of gurus that we, we like to go to for self development. For, but for me at that time was my, my new support system. Yeah. <laughs> my new support system, but caused me to look further than how can I get free legal advice which I did get free legal advice. I did all those things, which again, turned out to be far more disastrous than maybe if I had done nothing at all, because the legal advice was so bad, but you know, like I I got to the place where it didn't, it didn't much matter what was Mm -hmm. happening with my ex or what was happening in the court. I had to detach from that because I had to see beyond that to, what life am I going to create for myself? And I, I know darn well, it's not the judge and the attorneys that are going to do it. I have to be the one to have the vision to decide, you know, what I really want for myself. And I went back to that impact and purpose. And it seems ludicrous to say, I'm a single mom on welfare out in the middle of the countryside, no job prospects, no money, no friends, but I'm going to decide to become somebody impactful in the world. <laughs>
0: it's That's like, amazing. What
1: what are you talking about? It's possible though. It's absolutely possible. And I, I, I can't really tell you how I did it. I mean, I can tell you step-by-step, but it's, as you said, it's energetic medicine is where, where your energy is, where your energy is focused and what you're building. I could have focused all my energy on the court. I could have focused all my energy on the survival and I didn't. And thank God I didn't because- that's still, that's still ongoing. The court is still ongoing nine years later.
0: Nine years. Wow. But something, something you said, that's, that's, you know, probably hammered at home. Always talk about tribe, like finding your right tribe. Right. And I only want to, I do my best to surround myself with exceptional human beings. I want to be the, I don't, I want to be the dumbest person in the room. Right. Because you want to be around exceptional people because suddenly normal, you are expand, you just go into that expansion space, right. Where you, where you, right. things you think that are unachievable you know i see people exactly. physically to, almost twice my age doing stuff and i'm like oh should he can do that in his 60 i better get my game up right it's just, it's being around those people that creates expansion and creates that and i love that word detachment right because you could have sat there mm-hmm. in the countryside and stressed about the court system you're not going to influence a barrister sitting somewhere Is no. you know that's just that's just low vibe with bad energy and so that's, I mean, that is an amazing use of a, of a very, very shitty <laughs> shitty situation.
1: Um, and so I, I think I told you this, like I hesitate telling people about how shitty it was because <laughs> even just listen, even listening to my story, it seems that people get almost traumatized and triggered just listening to how crappy it was. And then they get stuck there and then they get stuck in that thought about (laughs) fight or flight. And Oh, that's not fair. And Oh, that's horrible. And Oh, you must be so suffering and traumatized. And Oh, you know, the, the human mind wants to go there so fast and stay stuck in that space. And, I think it's hard for people to understand when I tell them that is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Honest to God, the best thing that's ever happened to me, because I never, never would have uncovered who I really was, had it not been for all that flame and fire.
0: So was that when the concept of Divorce for Destiny, which is your company now, was that when it was born once you sort of, you know, came out of the the spin cycle and started looking at expansion. Was that where the concept for the business came?
1: I I wasn't thinking in those lines at all because I was so focused on my purpose, actually. Mm. So what I, the the purpose that I came out with, with my visioning and my vision boarding and my goal setting and all of those things was that I wanted to influence the top 1% of wealth in the world to make more compassionate more global decisions with that wealth and how they were using it. And so I went in that direction. And, um, you know, I, I believe in serendipity. I believe that there is um, spirit out there opening doors for us and making pathways for us. And I decided this when I was out in the middle of the countryside. <laughs> An opportunity came my way and I knew it came straight to me. It was, mm-hmm. it was made for me organizing conferences for the top 1% of wealth of the world and talking about impact, impact investing, which is also what I'm involved in now very heavily. Mm-hmm. So that was just a direct answer to a very clear intention of mine. And I took the job and I killed at the job because that job was made for me. It was literally made for me. Um,
0: so talking about the, the universe and spirit, it's, it's, yeah. it's the way I see that. It's almost like you were placed in Seattle to see the high net worth people, as you said, being head heavy and not heart heavy, right? So you yeah. had that growing up, you saw this wealth that could be used elsewhere. Um, and that probably did that beautiful full circle, which took you straight back there to use that yeah. wealth in, in, in empowering ways. So I, I see that as amazing.
1: There, there are a million ways in which our life shapes us for the exact moment in time, which we, we are purposed for if, if we allow ourselves to get to kind of our highest potential, or if mm-hmm. we, we, we can see ourselves to our highest potential. There are thousands of ways my past had shaped me perfectly for that role. And there are a hundred more ways that that role shaped me perfectly for where I am today. Um, Skills and bizarre events that logically don't go together at all. So, you know, I stepped into that role knowing that it was made for me with the assurance that, hey, I don't know what the heck I'm doing, but since this role was given to me, I know that it's gonna take me where I need to go and so now I'm forgetting the original question that you asked me actually was. Oh, uh,
0: it was, uh, how did Divorce for Destiny, uh, from Divorce yeah. to Destiny come? I said, was it that? And you said, no, you're finding yeah. yourself. And then that role came, and then you took that role. Uh, well, I wasn't, that even, event.
1: I, I wasn't even very solid on where I was going because I hadn't proven to myself that it would be. Mm. Successful that my little experiment of diving deep into myself would be successful in any way. I was just trying to still survive, but also have my own personal mission. And that grew and that grew and that grew. And I'm in a position today that I would never have wildly dreamt of when I was sitting alone in my bedroom, watching YouTube videos and Ted talks. And um, like the, the, the biggest possible dream that I could have had that day wasn't a 10th of where I am today. Wow. Because the dream, the the dream just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, as I went along and it's not as if, you know, I just took off on gossamer wings and everything was smooth and easy, but you know, there's a lot of ups and downs and difficult moments in that time. But knowing that This growth path was made for me. It's meaningful. And this is where I'm supposed to be, you know, makes all the rest of it easier. And after, during quarantine is when the idea for From Divorce to Destiny came because I had friends who were struggling with divorce and realizing that there weren't the resources out there to explain to them what a wonderful catalytic event this could be for reinventing your life the way that you want it to be, getting in touch with your highest path. Um, and allowing yourself into that elation without the fear and the guilt, or with reducing the fear and the guilt and the shame and the pain that you can go through in divorce, a lot of which is caused by our own thoughts and our own conditioning that was false. It was false. So knowing that I could help my friends through that and seeing them benefit from that made me think about you know actually putting this into a course and putting this down and saying you know this this sad tragic divorce story is not the only story out there you know sometimes your divorce can be the best thing that happened to you because it will catalyze you onto a new evolution of yourself
0: i mean i know for me hands down it it is i'm like i'm so thankful for it right that it hurt it hurt like nothing else but it's it's you know the way i look at us humans we, we 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 you know, stubborn creatures, right? We don't change, humans don't evolve. And you'd probably know this coaching people, it really takes a person's going to want to change and want to ascend and want to evolve to actually work mm-hmm. with them. Uh, and I know a lot of people through divorce, just, you know, end up in another relation, keep the same pattern and off they go. But it's that unique, amazing opportunity, the way I see it, where you are in so much pain, where life does suck so much,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that it is time to look mm-hmm. in the mirror and and evolve and say, well, if you're ever going to evolve, this is the time, right? This is the time to do it. And and, and I, and I agree with you 100%. It's a, it's an amazing opportunity. And I, I, for me personally, I I could never thought I'd be living the life I live and be helping people. It's just Hmm. none of that would have come if I hadn't got divorced.
1: I'm so glad you said that looking in the mirror and, you know, being able to help other people, when you get in that position of radical responsibility radical personal responsibility about who you're going to show up as in this lifetime and what you're going to do with your precious wild and crazy life Mm -hmm. um, and that it's all on you (laughs) that realization and taking those reins is a completely different space a head space from where i was before when i was married and having that depth of experience having that depth depth of pain, um, adds to, uh, you know, our ability to understand and be compassionate for people who are in the fire and who are in the pits of despair, who are dealing with these challenges, knowing that, yes, it's really horrible and painful and deep and, but there's treasure down there that you can bring up to the surface to enrich your life and enrich who you are as a person.
0: So from uh, from the work you're doing on the on the top 1%, I just want to roll back there. Um, what other projects are you busy with? I know you, I looked at your website. You, you <laughs> wear many hats. Um, so just, you, you just want to chat about all the other things you do. And then I think we can, we'll start closing it off, just talking about more on the, you know, the why we actually why here for your company, the divorce company and what that offers. But just all the other hats that you wear in the world. You just want to fill us in on, on all the other things that you do.
1: Yeah. So, um well, I I had been in the family office space, which is again, you know, the top one percent of private wealth owners in the world, mm-hmm. and talking about impact and talking about where they can invest. You know, things like green energy or regenerative farming or um, changes in the way that our our systems, general systems, are built, um, whether it's education or <laughs> um, you just policy around, you know, different things. It's amazing what humans can do when we organize ourselves. So I stayed in that space and befriended a lot of wealth owners, befriended a lot of incredible innovators who have solutions. Um, I, that space inspires me so much because we hear about the the inevitable catastrophe of climate change, of refugee displacement, of food shortages, of pandemics, of all of these things. And very rarely do we hear about the solutions that are out there. Mm. And frankly speaking, the governments don't have them. The governments are very often bottlenecks to having them and that can be huge facilitators to distributing and funding them, but are usually quite behind the curve. Quite behind, so which is why we need private investors to come in and fill in the gap because government is so slow to react, as as we've seen. So I stay in this space because not only is it really exciting and hope filled, but also because you know when we convene people together around ideas, they can move mountains. Um, just you know, think think back on five years ago, how many people were building clean energy. And how many people are funding and building clean energy today? That's because we focalized on an idea. So I'm involved in convening people, (laughs) but I'm also involved in funding these projects that can very literally change the course of our world, um, that can absorb carbon, that can uh, make carbon disappear, that can clean up water, that can uh, Deliver healthcare to people in the mountains with no address. Um, you know, these are technologies that are readily available, and we're able to apply them. All we need is to get to the right people and to get to the right money to do it.
0: So, he has a bit of a, a bit of a weird slash coaching question. I just want to ask you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> bear with me. No, it's just reflection. I think it's so amazing when you were standing there, when you made that decision, the straw that broke the camel's back, yeah. you know, if if you heard that last minute or two that you just said about who you're working with, the change, the impact, I know you alluded to it earlier on, but mm-hmm. would you have believed it and, and how proud of would you have been, you know, just to show people that, because that's, I mean, that must be the oh. most uplifting work working with the most amazing, intelligent, successful people trying to help the planet. I mean, yeah. can you actually believe that that's, that's, you've achieved that?
1: That's a fantastic, uh, that's probably the best question uh, anyone's ever asked me, honestly. Um, I wouldn't have, it. I wouldn't have because I wouldn't have thought myself capable. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I would have said, who am I to even get on the phone with one of those people? Uh, I don't have the intelligence, I don't have the skill, I don't have the background, I wouldn't even know where to begin what to do i think my my view of myself and my view of life had been so belittled i there's no way that my brain could have even comprehended getting on the phone with one of these people who i now just talk to as if they were my neighbor or you know my best friends which many of them are and we we get these ideas of, you know, worthiness um, of who's worthy of what and what we're worthy of that are also just false programming. <laughs> yep. no. Yeah. So not recognizing our own gifts. I mean, for me, you know, the way I grew up was pretty humble. I mean, I, I was around wealth. My family in Thailand was very wealthy, but I never considered myself special in any way. Um, and knowing that my specialness wasn't because I stood out in one area, but because I had put my finger in so many pies that I knew, you know, what flavors to put together, that's not something that they're going to teach you in school. I wasn't an attorney. I wasn't a doctor. I was a generalist. There's no, you know, n- nobody. Nobody puts money values on that. Nobody puts money values on how do you read people's personalities and who do you know who's going to get along and who's not, and whose projects are going to get along and what leadership styles they're going to have. I didn't know I had those skills because those are never skills that people have on their CVs.
0: Yeah. What is your skill? Now I'm a connector. (laughs) What's that? Well, I I get the right people in the room. (laughs) That doesn't work in a resume, but it's so important.
1: Yeah. People say, people say I'm the glue. I've heard that many times. I'm the glue. What is that? How, how much does that pay? I don't know.
0: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Network times what? 10 glue. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, I do glue. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So appealing to thank you for answering that man. Um, Divorce to a destiny. How's, how's that gone? How's it been? How's the evolution of is, is it digital only? Are you doing coaching? You're doing group work? How, I know you, you alluded yeah. to during COVID to help friends. What can you offer people to sort of, who've resonated with your story and want help and looking for additional support? How, I guess two questions loaded mm. up there, but how was it trying to actually contextualize what you've learned into syllabus? Because there's a lot. And secondly, yeah. how, how have you found helping others who, who are struggling?
1: Yeah, I think the one of my learnings that I took away is I had mentors. I had many mentors throughout the years, and they were people that I very specifically selected because of who they were, not necessarily what they were saying, what they were teaching. But I knew that they had some kind of magic I wanted in my life and knowing that there are many different teachings around divorce, especially around the legal and financial side of things, very heavily on the legal and financial side of things. I knew that I wanted a different flavor to be out there, a little different kind of a magic to be out there of the idea of rebirth, of rebirthing Mm. yourself as I had like the Phoenix, just allowing it all to burn up, allowing it to distill down to your essence. Who are you in the ash? Who are you? And then growing new wings, and flying off into a new evolution of yourself, that to me was something that I hadn't heard out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was trying to communicate to my friends who were going through this, and and trying to sort out in my own mind what was the process that got me thinking that way, what was the mindset that I had, and what kind of exercises or practice did I do that was actually really effective and powerful? Because I have to say I did a lot. I did a lot. You know, I was, as you say, human guinea pig. I was guinea picking it and I was trying to select the ones that were really powerful for me or kind of mishmashes of different people's teachings that I had kind of taken, digested, distilled, and I had put it out as my own perspective or my own idea or the way that I took something and shaped it for my life. And so I was taking kind of the, you know, the best of the buffet, so to speak. um, And then adding some more spices to it and more flavor to it. But I was going on the different stages of what it's like to let it all burn. The letting go process, I think is probably the hardest the fear of leaping off the cliff, the fear of losing yourself, losing your friends, losing your family, losing who you thought you were because I was a traditional housewife. (laughs) That's gone.
0: (laughs) Bye-bye.
1: And all the things that I held dearly about my own identity were gone. I wanted to be lily white pure saintly <laughs> and i had to allow myself to it, it wasn't go dark but allow myself to to be okay with you know not not being viewed as that and even you know looking at my shadow looking at my sadness looking at my darkness looking at my own trauma that got me in the relationship in the first place why did i allow that behavior in the first place and how do i not allow that behavior in the future so looking at those processes and how did I rebuild myself? What mindset around money? Ooh, that was that was a painful one. My mindset around money and how money was my own worth and value and identity and how I lost all that. Yeah. Um, around family, what kind of a mother was I going to be uh, when I didn't have full custody of my children? You know, and what is a mother really? What are we meant to give our children? as they're growing up and as they walk out our door, what do we want them to have? So I had I had built all this learning around these and I put them into modules saying, you know, how, how can we figure out what we really want for our lives and who we really are for our lives and uh, who we really are at the core in our lives um, and how to do that in a really easy, kind of a step-by-step way so that we're not staying all this in the theoretical cloud, but we're making it very like tangible in everyday life. Like, what does that look like in everyday life? When you love yourself, what does that look like? What kind of decisions are you making today when you love yourself versus when you don't? Um, So, yeah, so I did, I, I did that. I made the online course and that for me is more of a movement or a decision to participate in the movement of conscious divorce of really going inward um, in divorce and and utilizing that fire uh, to cleanse and rebuild. So I know there are other people in the conscious divorce space. I haven't seen very many. Um, and especially when you don't have a spouse that is in agreement with the conscious divorce. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's that was the the journey was building this for friends and then trying to put it out to the public so that this would be a thing. Like this is an option. This is a very viable option. Not only is it very viable, but like oh my gosh, what can happen to your life when you do this? You know, man.
0: Yeah, I'm shaking my head because I know that opportunity is so. It's so, I mean, it's brutal, but it's so unique. It's so unique to have everything ripped from under you. You know, the white picket yeah. fence goes, all that stuff goes, right? And, and the word you use there, you know, that work around the identity, like that identity and releasing that old self and having permission to release that old self and stepping into whoever you are going to be. It's, yeah. You don't get that very often in your life, right? It's, it's, it's either, in my experience, it's either, you know, cancer or trauma, losing a family mm-hmm. member or a child. It's, it's the big, big events that come along. Um, and divorce is one of those. And it gives you that opportunity to evolve if you choose to.
1: Yeah, totally spot on. That's it. it this, is, this is one of those rare moments in your life where you get to look at the totality of it and, and decide mm-hmm. again. And taking the shame and the guilt away from that and putting the opportunity back into that I think is is one thing that drives me to say, you know, hey, this – I mean, this can be really, you know, your your moment if you allow it to be your moment, if you can see past survival. And, you know, when I mentioned being around all these highly impactful, highly successful people, you know how many of them are divorced? <laughs> An insanely high number of them are divorced. And that's not yeah. by accident. It's not because, you know, we when we reinvent ourselves, we grow, we we evolve, we allow, you know, we, we follow that, that flow of life, but that deepening that wisdom that comes from going through such an experience will serve us in every aspect of life. Mm -hmm. Like it has with me, with my career, with my ability to mother my children uh, in a more conscious way. So, yeah, so I do one-on-one coaching, even though that's very, that's very, very limited because my focus is on movement on yeah. cultural movement. Um, and so there is group, there is group coaching. Um, I have a couple facilitators, even though I haven't opened that uh, container yet, but that's opening soon. But so there's just the the online course has a lot of videos and it has a Facebook group where you can ask questions and there is some interaction there. But the the interaction with me, you know, on a one-to-one basis is is limited, as I said, because you know I am doing this impactful work, but but because because we need to change the entire dialogue around divorce, the entire thing, and globally. I mean, in in uh, in the states, people are far more open to divorce uh, being being okay. It doesn't have to be traumatic and horrible. Yeah. Uh, in in France, it's kind of the same, but in many countries, you you can't dream of getting a divorce. It's just the most shameful. Uh, thing your your family is absolutely you know traumatized and let down and you know these thoughts that we have around relationships ending are really violent very
0: quite cruel Mm -hmm. and and it also I mean speaking for myself it's it's something you failed at right And and I and I've had this I've always had this desire and this drive to be the best at whatever I do but it's like shit I failed at this you know, and, and that's, and yeah. you also have to release that guilt, right? Because, yeah, <laughs> you know, similar to your situation, it takes two to tango, right? There's, it's, it's not, you don't have a hundred percent responsibility for the relationship, but sure. you have responsibility for your part, but sometimes things aren't going to work out and, and yeah. you have to, you know, let that one, go on quote frozen, but let it go and, and, <laughs> and just, you know, and, and step into that new identity. Otherwise, and that's what I see a lot of people cuz i grew up in a in a very sporty background and i remember sitting in these sports clubs and bars in south africa where mm-hmm. you get these two or three guys sitting on the corner of the bar There were the three divorce guys and they feel very sorry for themselves and they tell the story of how they got screwed over and and that was yeah. their new identity and they they chose that and yeah. for whatever reason as a kid i saw that and you know no matter what no matter and i was like i don't ever want to be that guy i don't want to have this event defined me to become that guy. I want to be someone else. And maybe I was lucky that I'm observant and I spotted them at the end of bars, but they were always there.
1: You, you do have a specific energy about you though, that is tremendously forward moving. And that is, compassionate. And I think when you're compassionate towards others, you're more compassionate towards yourself or vice versa, really, mm-hmm. you can be more compassionate towards yourself. But this idea of failure I think is stronger with men uh, because men hold a responsibility to keep it all together, uh, to keep the family unit, you know, moving in together. And it's, it's very interesting to me, how we, how we factor failure into relationship Uh, For me, the failure would have been to remain in that relationship. Mm -hmm. That would have been a huge fail (laughs) for my my future. Um, You know, I'm not trying to be funny, but like you see people who are miserable in their marriages and they've been in these miserable marriages for 20 years and we congratulate them. Oh, it's your 25th anniversary. Congratulations. Like, what is that?
0: (laughs) Or the classic: how... Are we waiting for the kids to leave to go to uni, and then we're going to get? new like, yes. what's the point? What's the point of that? How is
1: how yeah. is this a success, and how are we how are we valuing our own lives and other people's values and lives when we expect them to, you know, stay in partnerships that aren't actual partnerships? Um, mm-hmm. So, and, and I think we need to be a little bit more compassionate and reasonable about what we expect out of each other and what we expect out of ourselves. It's a really, really big ask to say, you and I are going to be best friends for life. We are going to be sexually attracted to one another for our entire lives. We are going to, you know, uh, have the same goals for 50 years, we're going to have the same, you know, like we're
0: going to evolve together and we're both going to do the work and yeah, all that stuff. Right.
1: I mean, it's a minority. It's a minority. And and that's not to say we can't do it or can't do it better, but let's look at the reality of the, the situation now and say, wow, it, it's a lot for people to be aligned on even five of these points, much less 10 of these points, and then remain aligned for 50 years. That's a lot to ask. And we don't have to make each other wrong for saying, hey, you know what? Actually, like 10 years ago, I thought I wanted to be this person. And now I realize that that's not who I really am. I actually want to like go explore and, you know, I'm gonna be a hippie, or I now I'm, now I'm gonna be, you know, really into like science, or now I'm gonna, you know, we we take these t- twists and turns in our lives and and having this rigid idea of that the, the person is supposed to follow us and everything, or that the relationship has to remain the same throughout all of that is really um, not, not understanding of how humans function. Mm.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I, I went something that still sits with me. I went to a workshop at a yoga studio. I go to here and the yeah. lady running it spoke about relationships. And she said, well, what happens if you took the paradigm of a relationship with knowing every relationship, every relationship's going to end business, yeah. sexual, personal, or right. whatever it is, right? He says, if you know it's going to end through whatever, whether, whether that be death, divorce, whatever, whatever it's going to end, wouldn't that put you in a position where you know it's going to end? Therefore, you're not going to take the shock and the heartbreak away. Mm-hmm. What that does, it puts you into the present moment to give you the mindfulness and appreciate that relationship for what it is. Yeah. But then when you do roll to the time when it ends, you know, everything's going to end. So you're not shocked. And I was, I was like, wow, that's such a simple and beautiful way to bring in like Eckhart's work and this work and that work, because I think as humans, we get so in our head about what if, what if, what if, what if looking 10, 20, 50 years down the line, but if you just know whatever relationship you end, end is going to end. It's well, it's going to end. Just enjoy it while it's there and be purely mindful and enjoy it. I thought it was beautiful.
1: That's gorgeous. I I Mm. love that. We we know it's going to end, you know, truth Mm. is often more kind than our fiction and as I was when I moved to the States and was shocked by how people wanted their lives to fit into a sitcom scenario. You know, we are still doing it to ourselves as adults, you know, pretending that things aren't going to end or pretending they have to be this way or pretending that they have to be that way instead of just allowing ourselves to be uh, natural in the present moment, as you said, and really, you know, like just be, just be thankful. I mean, if I were to, speak to my ex-husband now, Mm -hmm. I would, yes, probably say what you did was really wrong, really painful, and caused a lot of strife. And I would also say, thank you. You know, I would also say, say, thank you for the lessons. Thank you for the experiences and not only the painful ones, but also the joyful ones, but all of it has caused me to, to grow to be you know, who I am and discover who I was, uncover who I was. And, you know, I'm grateful for that, all of it.
0: Tiffany, that's a beautiful note. to pretend you know we've been speaking for an hour and a half already? And mm-hmm, went unbelievably quickly. Um, let's put a bow on this thing. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's mm. been an amazing conversation. And I'm sure you and I could speak for a couple more hours, but for let's, sure. Let's yeah. keep it tight. Um, where can people find you, firstly, um, for all the amazing things that you do, and and then secondly, um, just a closing thought, right, for for those struggling, those who are in the depth of despair or the pain cave, as I call it. Just some words of inspiration, just to the CSN.
1: <laughs> Yeah. I, well, I'm pretty sure that if you just Google from divorce to destiny, you're going to find me, but I've got a, a website, just that from divorcedodestiny.com. But if you want um, content, put, you know, tips and yeah, you you can put the, I'll put uh, all the I'll links in the show notes. Here. Yeah, And then the, I, I've got the Facebook page and the Instagram page where I put quite a bit of content up around this idea of conscious divorce and around letting go of the shame and the guilt and the fear and all of those things that get in our way, the wrong programming. So quite a bit is out there. Uh, I do have the one-on-one coaching, but you'll see that in the, in the uh, website, but you asked about what I would say to people. um, And Mm -hmm. that, you know, I uh, thank you for that opportunity. I really take great responsibility when I am talking to people who were in the situation that I was in Um, it's, it's tremendously hard. And I would say, you know, when you can't see the future for yourself and when you can't see the possibility, when you don't have that hope and that excitement for what can come when you you're just kind of in the fog and in the dark, um, allow yourself to borrow it from teachers online, from friends and family, from coaches, mentors, support systems, allow yourself to, to feed off of their vision and feed off of their energy and to feed off of um, their possibility for your life, because they can probably see things outside of the fight or flight <laughs> response that you can't see right now. And trust trust that knowing that a whole world is out there waiting for you on the other side of that, that fear. And on the other side of that, the burn, (laughs) we'll call it the burn on the other side of the burn. It's just that, you know, you you just can't see it yet. You can't see it yet. And that's okay. And that's perfectly normal, but other people can. Um, And, and you can borrow their eyes just for a minute until you, you, you see it for yourself, but just know that it's out there, like have the faith to just keep walking forward. I mean, I kept walking forward. I was terrified. Step by step, I kept walking forward and, and didn't know when the light would come. But when the light came, oh my gosh, it was blinding. You know, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful other side. So yeah, I would just say, just, just keep walking, even if you can't see it.
0: Tiffany, thank you so much. Um, from me to you, I'd just be very, very proud of all you achieved. And and thank you for getting those with the, with, the, with the coin to look after our planet, right? I think it's an amazing cause and, and amazing everything you're doing. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you. You're fantastic, a fantastic, fantastic interviewer. I have really appreciated this.